Welcome to Verity, and today I've got Rich Mulholland. Uh, Rich, welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining me. I mean, you live in Cape Town, and you came all the way to Joburg for me. So Just for you. I, I, I really do appreciate it. So looking the way you do... Um, Okay, well, first Thanks, thing, let, let, let's, start, let's start from the yeah, beginning. Feel this, is, this is going to go pear-shaped. Let's start from the beginning. You make, in your words, kick-ass presentations. No, you help corporates make kick-ass presentations for something or other. Right. Yeah, we help people uh, deliver a memorable message. Right. And that, and your clients include like big corporations. Um, who else? Well, they're mostly, they're, we actually have a no entrepreneur policy for the creation side of our business. We don't work with anyone who's paying their own bills. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So we'll you talk about that later. Right. Right. So, yeah. so you walk into, I don't know, a huge bank or a big insurance company in Santon or, or Centurion or whatever the case might be. And you walk in like that. What do they tell you? Because in my opinion, I worked for corporate one year and it was, it just killed everything about me. My personality, I had to get along with people I don't like. I had to smile and wave. Like it was really awful, like a deadened culture. So when you walk in like that, I'm sure you must make quite a, a buzz. I mean, so the first thing is that I don't think, um, like I think there's a lot of people I work with who have corporate jobs who love their work. I got a mate who works for Investec and he seems to like, loves it like he loves the vibe loves the energy but again there's a very unique culture there so i think the kind of the average i mean there's a definite risk that the average corporate culture can kill sure. uh, the truth of the matter is if i walk into a meeting in south africa at least uh, like this people are fundamentally polite so they're not going to kick you out nobody yet has ever turned around and said well we're not having this meeting oh no not that but yeah. perhaps do they view your input less than well i hope so in their mind and that's the plan right already. so you want there to go with a, a, a bad um first impression exactly so the biggest lie for me is that they say that first impressions uh you know there's no second chance to make uh, a better first impression sure. like it's, it's terrible it's a terrible line i think that what's more important is a lasting impression i think a lasting impression is expectation versus reality so if I expected something, if I went to a movie, let's say I told you this movie was amazing, it was a 10 out of 10, it was the best movie you've ever seen in your life. If you go to that movie and it was a nine, yeah. it's actually a minus one sure. on expectation. It's disappointed you slightly based on what you expected. My friend Mike Stopford told me I had to go watch Thor Ragnarok. I don't watch superhero movies. I'm not a fan. But he said, this is, he said, like, this is honestly my top 10 movies of all time, not even superhero movies top 10 movies of all time i was like damn so i watched it on the plane coming back from spain the other day and i was like well it was good but my measurement was top 10 movies of all time but you have to watch those movies on imax not on a bloody plane screen for sure but that, again that, that, that kills i mean you can watch the best movie in the world but if i don't it's know on i watched that screen, uh, another then another movie i watched on a plane had no expectation whatsoever it's a chick flick called uh me before you and it's got Khaleesi in it, uh, Amelia uh, Clark. Yes. And it's a love story about this woman who basically looks after this guy who's crippled and wants to die. First of all, it's very embarrassing being like this hardcore tattooed guy crying buckets on an airplane. But not like, not like a little tear, like looking at the person that she's like, oh. <laughs> I made my, my wife watch it on the way back and um, people were handing her tissues like it was hectic. Anyway, right. I loved that movie so much. I expected nothing. I loved it so much that I ended up reading the next two books um, because my expectation was low. Okay. And I think that's what happens. I walk into a meeting. In fact, in TED 2005, I was lucky enough to be, I think, the first South African speaker ever to speak on the main stage of TED. And I did a talk called First Impressions Lie. And I told the story about going to a meeting uh, at ABSA where this uh, but basically I'd walked in and the woman gave me shit she said to me how can you come and see me meeting like this don't you realize that I'm on the board of this organization and I said well yeah they told me that when you guys phoned and requested the meeting she said well how can you come and see me like this and I said to her well, in fairness I'm not on the board of ABSA you know I run an entrepreneurial business this is who yeah. I am yeah. and she kind of laughed and said okay well come in and sit down and I could see I mean didn't get off a tea or coffee I could see she didn't take it seriously there was another guy that was there. He was walking out when I arrived, and he's from one of our competitors, like business presentation services or something like this. He had his like suit and one of those briefcases with like you know the codes and. Anyway, uh, like when that guy walked into the meeting, she must have assessed, looked five out of five, like yeah. five out of ten. This guy like fits all the right things. He's got the right things. He's kind of halfway. He checks the box. I walked in. She was offended by me. One out of ten, right? So that's my bad first impression. Now. 
when this guy Leah, leaves the meeting and uh, you know i give them shit about how boring they are but they you know they're a pretty good company probably like an eight out of ten managed to get to me i was probably not on my best that day i managed to get to a seven out of ten sure and uh you know, it's pretty shit. So I, I arrive at a 1 out of 10 and I leave at a 7 out of 10. He arrives at a 5 and leaves at an 8. Now, theoretically, he'd get the work, but of course he doesn't. It would be a crap story. We always get the work. And the reason is that we took the people on a bigger journey. So we took yeah. them from a 1 out of 10 to to a 7. seven. They, yeah. He took them from a 5 to an 8. What he actually says is they, uh, you know, please the expectations based on a measurement of three and we please their expectations based on a measurement of six. And um, that's the kind of thinking that we've always tried to put in there. I mean, that's, that's actually a very good story. The problem with me, like, I actually do like wig jackets for a long, yeah. like, like this is my, one of my daily kits. I'm just worried that if I do walk in with a t-shirt, like I actually can't make up that three or four points more than someone else coming in dressed correctly. Well, no, because if you imagine, do you think if you walk into me, so it's also about being best version of self, right? There's a whole confidence issue. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you're feeling less confident and not less comfortable in who you are and what you're, what you're like, well, then I don't think you're going to deliver on your best. Yeah. But um, when, when I'm feeling confident, if I'm happy with how I look and I appear and I feel confident that I've put together the outfit that I felt like wearing that day, then I'm able to deliver at a certain level. So let's say you were comfortable in a T-shirt. It's not about how well you deliver. I'm not asking you to be better than who you are. I'm saying that if they judge you as less than you are and you just simply deliver as who you are, that's a, that's a plus movement onto the needle. Right. However, I'm not suggesting that everybody does this. I'm not for a single second do I think that all bankers should stop wearing uh, suits and things. So I do think the idea of a, of a proper full suit is completely absurd. It was, it's a weather-appropriate oh, item love, of clothing. I love suits. Though. For British people. Yeah, I mean, for South Africa. I mean, you can have linen. I mean, it's, for sure. it's a bit of a pain in the ass, but oh, yeah, well, suits are great. I like them. But no, people, so we, when we facilitate, I always wear a jeans, a jacket, a waistcoat, and a tie. Always. That's how we facilitate. That's a, like a jam. Yeah, okay, yeah. That, that sounds good. All right, so now how do you, t so where else will this work? This You create a negative impression and like increase it exponentially. Is it just, uh, do you just do that for business or do you, when you meet people, do you not try to impress them? That maybe that's the wrong word, but. Do you like having the fact that people have low expectations when they meet you? No, um, and it gets increasingly difficult, right? Because as you get known, first of all, you only have to do one project with somebody and then they have a sense of what the expectation is. Sure. And today's greatest you know, service is tomorrow's minimum expectation. I think that's a Joe Calloway quote, and, and, but I think it rings true. So that's a cheap trick you only get away with once. Thereafter, right. you have to deliver. So it's not about, but again, I don't think I ever intentionally went and did this. I was just very punk rock for the first, at least, I mean, for my 30s. I think only when I hit 30 did I decide that it was time to change that. I only wore shorts. So, uh, yeah, so good, 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 yeah, good change. Yeah, that was I, I, my I don't thing. wear shorts. So I only wore shorts. I was very punk rock and I would go to meetings and I'd meet like Jacko Marie, Miles Rock, CEO of Center Bank and Liberty and things like this. And I was always in shorts and they knew that. And, uh, it was like part of my punk rock ethic, and that's all I was trying to prove. Right. It was more that I realized the results of this in retrospect. But I'm not trying to go out there and make a negative first impression. However, I'm trying to manage expectations better all the time. Uh, when we uh, discuss ROI with our clients, we always give an ROI that we think uh, that they will find uh, attractive that we will still find conservative. Sorry, what is ROI? Yeah, return on investment. Oh, uh, right, of course. Yes. So if I'm, if I'm explaining to a client how the, the, instead of arguing about price, I think price is ridiculous, uh, we'll make a, a claim on ROI. And I think that's the only thing that's important, is uh, what percentage of ROI would you be comfortable making this investment under? And yeah, yeah. the I mean, amount of money is irrelevant if you've agreed that the ROI is good. So if you say, I want a 100% uh, ROI, and I can guarantee you and show you the numbers and statistics that can prove that we could give you 100% ROI on what you're spending, well, then the money should be a no-brainer. Whether I charge you a million, if you're making another you know, million on top of on top, that. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't yeah. mean a thing. So, so, mm. so, so you do basically the opposite of dating. So when you meet uh, a potential partner for the first time, you always try to do the best that you can. You, you pay the bill, you dress correctly, you shave, you meet the lady or the man. And then when you actually become a couple like it just goes downhill from there because those expectations have never met again and that's yeah. why you get divorces I suspect I don't know I think there's more complexity in divorce than that but I do think you're absolutely right I think that we 
should be i mean but it's, it's tricky right because you you're walking a fine balance if i was going on a date with somebody i would want to look uh like myself but the best version of myself sure so uh, i may still be in in uh jeans and a t-shirt but i might pick a t-shirt that i think is one that i particularly enjoy like or do and uh, i think the mistake is when you present yourself as somebody that you're not but i also think that messes with your brain like i'm unable to be uh, so I was invited to go. Um, there was the president of EO South Africa, entrepreneurs organization. And every year, 12 people are selected from like the 11,000 around the world to go on this global leadership academy or 20 people. And I was invited to go and they told me there was a dress code. Mm. And I was like, okay, I understand that because we're in DC and we're in all these big top hotels and you had all these big special guests, advisors to the president, things like this. And I was going to, and at first I mailed them and I checked, is it just for the evening functions? I thought, that's fine. I've got a kilt. That's formal. I can wear that. And then, you know, I'm happy to pair jeans and a waistcoat and a tie and stuff like this. And so I mailed the guy. I said, look, is this okay? And he said, no, strictly no jeans. And then I was like, okay, shit. Okay, well, I could buy like one or two pairs of pants. But now I'm starting to feel frustrated because I've run a business for 20-odd years at this stage. Yeah. And uh, without, without a problem. Without a problem. Hard, and yeah. now you're telling me that because of this, you've invited me to this event. So now I'm getting all nervous and things like this. Anyway, then I'm going back and say, okay, but during the day in the business sessions, is it fine to be just in jeans? No, absolutely smart, casual all the time. So I go with my wife and my kids and we go to the, oh, what's that store in the V&A waterfront, Zara or, Cotton or whatever these bit fancy stores. And I start trying on slacks. Now this is going to sound like the most ridiculous thing. This was December two years ago. So I would have been 41. Yeah. Uh, 42. Yeah, uh, 42. Because uh, I'm 43 now. And uh, I was sitting there and I kept on trying on these slacks. And like my son was having a giggle at hard look in a pair of chinos. And even my wife said, geez, love, you look ridiculous. And it got to the point where I was close to tears. Like I actually thought, and I, I sat there and she said, well, then I said, I'm not comfortable with this. And she said, well, then don't do it. And I mailed him. I said, thank you so much for selecting me. I paid in full. My flights were booked. I was going two days later. And I said, I'm rescinding. I'm pulling away. From the course, I simply can't. I said, I've built mine. I wrote a long thing and I, and I actually explained. I said, I'm sitting in a shopping center close to tears about how ridiculous I feel. I said that um, this is not who I am and uh, uh, this is uh, ridiculous. I'm sorry that I can't meet your expectations, but I've run a business for this long this way and I refuse to be that person. And so I sent it to them and originally, apparently went and the one guy said that, you know, the mail went that somebody has pulled out the course because they don't like the dress code. And of course, the guys in the course are like, fuck him then yeah um, and then the one guy on the plane george gann had read my email on the airplane and on the airplane when he read it he was like absolutely not unacceptable he mailed me he said richard i don't care if you come wearing a bin bag you have been selected in this thing and you will come to this course and i was walking out the door to the house when i got his mail to just go on holiday in dc and i ran back in i got some stuff quickly my kilt and things for the formal function and off i went and I realized that like, I'm so glad because it became a big talking point about the organization, about the expectations and, the, and about what it takes to be a person. And I'm so glad that I was no, not willing to go back on who I was as a person. Like I'm pretty comfortable with who I am. I mean, it's, what astounds me is that just a dress code will make you that uncomfortable. I mean, that's quite something. Ordinary people, I mean, ordinarily people would think... Um, uh, you know, a different geographical area or just uh, different people entirely, but just the way you dress made you that close to not actually attending. That's, that's well, quite... Because you're, I couldn't be myself. But it, yeah, but it just shows how not the word is not set that you are, how comfortable and reassured you are with who you are. Yeah. You're like 43 now. You you know what you're doing. You've done it for 20 years. You've made, I assume, lots of money. And here are these, you know, fuckers on the other side of the ocean telling you that <laughs> you need to dress a certain way to impress them. Yeah. And and it wasn't, right? Of course, what it was, was we're going to several, first of all, the mistake about during the work session, you could have come in your running clothes for all they cared. When we were going to certain of the top hotels overlooking the White House and things like this, it's not, the, it's not EO's dress code. It simply is the dress code there. Right. And there I was totally happy. But even there, I wore a pair of jeans and a nice shirt and a collar and a tie. Like, People nowadays, they're, they're okay with these things. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was supportive. There was a formal function in the evening, a black tie function. Again, I get weddings and black tie functions. I put on my kilt, my jacket, my, my bow tie, everything, and it was perfect. Uh, but it was a great discussion point because it spoke a lot about the kind of leaders we were and what are we willing to stand up for. And to some people, it would be absolutely ridiculous to stand up for not wearing a pair of slacks. 
But to me, it was to stand up to defend the person that I am as a human being. You're asking me to say, because of who you are, we've invited you on this course. However, stop being who you are in order to attend. Yeah. And I felt that that was wrong. And have they changed the rules since then or not the yeah, rules? Yeah, absolutely. They've oh, really? changed the way that they, so they in subsequent, the last year's group, uh, they changed the way they invited people and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, congratulations. They clarified. I mean, yeah. that, that's great. Because another thing you're known for, you wrote a book called Legacide. Yeah. And now you, your, your main argument appears to be legacy is actually a terrible way to move forward in your business or or other things like that. Legacy is actually a killer of innovation. Right. Well, legacy thinking. Legacy thinking. Um, I have a feeling that might be difficult for people to understand because, not when they read your book, your book's great, by the way, but <laughs> people like to do things the way they've always done it because it works. And that's how, you know, civilization moves forward. You, we pick what works and we stick with what works and we, maybe we slightly innovate along the way, but... You know, um, political systems are political systems. You've got a parliament, you've got a, a president, you've got ministers. That's universal now. And if you don't have that, you're not really a, a nation. So how do you tell people that what they've been doing might not be the best way to achieve good things in the future? Right. So the first thing is that I think even people do innovate. Uh, but I think the mistake they make is they innovate on top of uh, instead of innovating instead of. So they'll yeah. take everything they have and then they see innovation as doing something new. And our realization was that innovation happens rather when you stop doing something old. So it's about turning off boxes before you, like turning off switches before you turn on new ones. I think the key hypothesis is the understanding that, so again, corporate culture. Yeah. You've been in a corporate. Uh, if you went to your boss and said, hey, this big program you spent a year developing two years ago or five years ago, I don't think it's right. That's like, wow, that's very offensive. How dare you say this? And do you know better than me? And it's not about saying that. And what you're actually doing is you're telling your boss uh, you were wrong. Sure. And the narrative has to change. And because of the pace of change we live in the world today, the narrative has to change from, I'm not saying that you were wrong. I think you were absolutely right in what you were doing. I simply think that you're, this is no longer the best way. And that's the, the understanding is that it's very, very simple for me. Uh, at any given thing that you're doing, any system, anything you have in place in any business, the first thing you look at is you say, okay, well, what problem are we solving? So what happens, I believe, fundamentally, is that we're a solution-centric people, not a problem-centric people. And mm -hmm. I think that's the flaw. So we create a solution to something. We love that solution. And we believe that we're in the business of the solution we created. Okay, and you should yeah. never be in the business of the solution you created. You should always be in the business of the problem that you're solving. Understood. Okay. Right, because your solution a may of ways, Then there's a myriad of ways, myriad solutions to that one problem. Right. There's always a myriad of solutions, and uh, there will always be a better one that's coming over time. So the first question that you have to ask is, is what we were doing still solving the same problem? Or does the problem still exist? When I started Missing Link, people were using overhead transparencies, and, and their exposure to PowerPoint, the expectation of PowerPoint was that it was going to be bad. Yeah. You know, they weren't good. We hadn't seen Steve Jobs or TED Talks or things like this. So the baseline was very low. Fast forward, you know, 15 years later, and the expectations started to evolve and change. But I was still solving problems like it was 1997. And that wasn't good enough. So I had to turn around and say, well, what problems exist now? Now people do. They're, they're, they've changed their perception. They're using all these better tools. It's much easier to make a better presentation. Are there new problems we can solve? And what do we solve there? And move on in that way. Right. So the first question I would ask is, does the problem still exist? If the answer is yes, then good. Um, if the answer is no, solve a new problem. But if the answer is yes, then you have to ask yourself, is the solution that we have still the best way? Basically, if I started my business today to solve this problem, would I solve it the way we're solving it now? If the answer is yes, then high fives to you. But if the answer is no, find a better way. But, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do, you do that to, to people? I mean, if, uh, you know, if I had to start a business today that, that competes with yours, for example, and I have some you know, latest app or, or computer program that doesn't need PowerPoint, for example, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have no idea how to present. Okay. Um, and you've been in the business for, for much longer. How do you tell your people that what we've been doing for 10 years as an example has been okay but there has to, but the problem so the problem you're trying to solve is what presenting is that the problem or presenting no, no, in no. a way that spreads well, the, the problem we're trying to solve is not even spreads the message oh. is creating a memorable impact so a presentation for me is to deliver a message to achieve a result 
So right. we're always in the business of the result. If there's a better way to achieve that result, then we should always be looking at that. Okay, but if uh, okay, fine. So, but how do you inculcate that within your own corporate, well, your own company culture, for example? Because I'm sure it gets very comfortable after a while. Hundred percent. But then we, very, that's very it. we constantly have to turn around and look at that, right? But who's the court jester telling you that? Laughing at you, you know the court jester was not in the medieval times. Was not just there just yeah, to make provoker. fun. It was to, it was to to ensure that the king always knew he was a human being. So I think that the world, to some degree, our exposure to the world and to thinking uh, will keep us honest. Uh, but the real court jester in your business is your balance sheet, and uh, nobody will tell you you're irrelevant like your clients. And the easy way of them telling you is is by not saying anything, by not picking up the phone, by not asking for a quote. And I feel our business lost its way in a big way for a while in that we became very comfortable and we became very boring. Uh, we were Because it's easy to make money the boring way, it's easier to replicate. Uh, I talk about it as solution refinement. Once you've created your solution, then you start refining what you've created sure. to, make, to you know, leverage it better. And uh, we started doing that and we became boring. Now, we thought our clients were in the business of buying from us presentations. But what they were was trying to buy memorable experiences. And every part of the experience seemed important to them, from making the presentation with us, the experience of doing that, to delivering it on the day. It all became part of the story that they wanted. And we failed on a number of those counts. And so we realized there was something wrong, and, and we understood what it was. But again, we're constantly looking to say, can we improve on this? Can we do this in a better way? Yeah, I mean, do you, do you bring new blood in just for that, for that, well, not new blood perhaps, because from the same, it's the, what I'm trying to get at, from the same people that you've had in your employment for a number of years, I would suspect, like it's difficult to get out of the mindset completely. Yeah, dude. So they say, okay, I found a, you know, a different solution for the problem, but it's, it's a, sort of the same. It's just an incremental, you know, um, progress from the previous solution. Like it's not a fundamentally different one. In any single way. Sometimes, but then sometimes it is, right? Or, sometimes or people com- come up with a completely new way of doing things. So our from product inside. has evolved. I think it's called entrepreneurship. Is that what it's called? Yeah, but from inside. Well, so, and also about creating challenges. Now, often in the herb business, that is led by we have these strategy sessions, Snowcon, we go snowboarding, we think of these things. Every major innovation in our business has definitely come out of Snowcon. And we, uh, you know, we provoke our business, we, we poke holes in it. We talk about what we will want to focus on. We create a victory condition for the year going forward. That's always like things that we do. And every major, like in the last Snowcon now, we've just launched a brand new company. And it's it's taking part of what we figured out in Missing Link and some problems that we had as a business. And we realized there was a problem for us, a problem for other people. Uh, from there, we mailed people. We got people involved. Uh, we've defined the equity and we launched the company. So there is a bit of entrepreneurship. However, the way we were able to do that is because it's to quote Howard Mann it's very hard to read the label from inside the bottle Mm. me stepping away from the business did two great things it allowed me to focus on what I'm good at and you know give me a better chance of success but also give the business a better chance of success because although Don has worked at the company for many many years when he took over as CEO it's a whole new mindset and a whole new position Mm. and his job is to come in and to say uh, there are no sacred cars I want to make the business better and I think that works very well. And I think that uh, him coming in there, he's not trying to preserve anything. He is trying to change it and disrupt it and, and new energy and new thinking. And I think it could work. However, sometimes bringing an outsider is amazing. Yeah, well, there was a, I don't know if you listened to Freakonomics, the podcast, that a whole the five episode series on CEOs. Oh, no, I've not heard that. And, uh, and they were talking about if you want to replace your CEO, would you go for someone on the outside or someone on the inside? And it's often the quiet person on the inside that's, that's gone up the ranks slowly but surely often makes the best CEO. Like Microsoft just did that after Steve Ballmer left mm-hmm. about three years ago. They, uh, look, uh, an Indian chap, I can't remember what his name is. And they've increased profitability and market share by 30 40%. And have you heard anything that Microsoft has done? Like in the no, past see, that three, is four years. Solution refinement, right? So that's where you've you've got a you've done the big step change required. You've discovered the new problems, so they created the surface, they've got a new range of machines, they've done these things. Now what they've got to do is they've got to leverage that better in the business. So they need a smart and so the different CEOs for different times, right? They need yeah. a, a the, the CEO that will turn that into to get them to a point. You may well find, though, that it'll become a point where people will say Microsoft is stagnant and they're not innovating, not doing those things, and they might need leadership uh, to come in and, and change that. 
And a yeah. company like Apple is quite smart because they've got the kind of disruptive, impatient person in you know Johnny Ives, uh, and then they've got their CEO numbers and 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 I you know that it's focused on the great business things, and I think that's quite a good. Uh, 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 combination. Yeah, I mean, but in terms of Apple, a lot of people have said, you know, they won't say since Steve Jobs left, but I don't think so. They are lacking innovation. They're just refining what they've got already. And uh, whatever innovation they are doing has been done before by their competitors. And they might do it like a little bit better. Look at but... those electric toothbrushes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. They they, they might do things better. The, the, they've got certain innovations that they can do. I don't think anyone can continue on the same disruptive curve as often no. as people think. And I think that people perceive Apple as being more disruptive uh, with what they did than they were. And I think part of the reason was, is for a lot of people, uh, the main, biggest disruption Apple created was when they jumped and switched from their Nokia to their iPhone or from their PC to their, uh, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. their Mac. Now, I personally left Apple because I found them to be, maybe you know, I left my phone on my 40th birthday and i left my mac two years ago and I, I went to windows machines i'm using the surface book at the moment and i did that because i find them more innovative like there's no doubt for me my machine i will argue preference with anybody right. i totally understand that some people prefer mac to windows i would never argue favorite uh, but my machine has all the specs that theirs does it does all the same things. Uh, plus, I can take off the screen. I can turn it around. I can watch movies that way. And I can touch screen. I can use my stylus and my pen. So it's my iPad Pro plus my machine. There's no doubt for me that it's better hardware. Yeah, it works better my for you. My charging brick. Well, I would, I would argue like even objectively. It's, More universally. It's, Are you it's, making a universal claim, Richard? Yeah, I'm making a universal claim that arguably if you measure spec for spec, it is a better machine. Okay. The hardware for hardware, but it has a number of other things that the one doesn't have. Now, I would not for a single second presume to argue that it's better for you, right? Okay. I'd like, a, you could absolutely, and in fact, like design and aesthetic is such an important thing that you can't discount it. If I prefer what Apple says about me as a person, then I absolutely would. But again, I use Android. Other people use uh, iPhone. I, I think the argument about better is, is moot. It, it is quite. It is. However, what my point was yeah. is that Apple have not been innovating very well. And in fact, up to recently, a lot of their innovations, like that little strip along the, I mean, they're a cure for no disease, right? They're, they're, they're great ideas that look sexy, whereas probably the biggest innovation they've actually come out with lately, probably the most disruptive one, is those earbuds. Uh, I think they're game changer. I've heard that from numerous people. Uh, do, do you know a chap called Naval Ravikant? No. He's at Naval on it's, uh, it's N-A-V-A-L great guy uh, he, he works in Silicon Valley and he said the same thing because he does his periscopes he mm -hmm. says these ear pods ear pods what are they called are probably the greatest innovations is the iPhone yeah. and for the life of me I can't understand why I, I don't have a pair but they're like wireless I use earphones. the braggy um, similar ones that pop them straight in as soon as I pop it into my ears it comes on on mine I'm not sure what the Apple ones does mine counts my calories like burnt calories oh wow okay yeah it's, it does yeah, all of these things technology I've put it back in there I've got 24 hours of charging however I think that um, and again I had the earrings I backed on on um, uh, Kickstarter long before Apple announced the AirPods. Right. However, what Apple does is they don't innovate well. They they steal very well and, and I mean, they, they appropriate well. Yeah, uh, yeah and then and then they appropriate well, but they appropriate and improve. And I think if less people try to innovate and more people try to appropriate and improve, I think we'd actually get better faster. Is there a legacy problem though? Well, no, because they're not appropriating from themselves. So oh, okay. the legacy yeah. is they're saying, well, again, let, let's look at Apple, just something about this is a company that for many, many years, the most iconic part of the design they created was a white cable that came down here. Yeah. Now, when you've built an entire brand, like if you can picture those posters, remember those old posters, the people dancing things with the, and the only thing that made it Apple was that little white cable. They changed the color of ear earphone cables. Earphone cables were all black and they made them white. This is a company that was able to totally and utterly uh, turn around and say, well, hey, I know that this made us who we were, but let's lose the cables. To hell with the white cables is right. a better way. Right. The other example of them doing that, and I heard Steve Wozniak in uh, Antwerp tell the story, is that when they designed one of the early Apples, I think it was the Lisa, they had a problem with the, the distribution of heat, that the fans were not able to cool off the heat of the new smaller machine enough. 
and one of the guys came up with a heat sink cable that distributed heat along the root of the whole thing so that it was able to dissipate better and get out and you didn't need a single fan. And at this point, Apple's like, wow, we have no fans. This is amazing. So Steve Jobs started saying, okay, that's it. We're never using fans again. And of course, the different... Uh, uh, you know, they went to all the different computers and the ones, remember, the one eventually was that kind of iMac, that colorful one. Remember that yes. one piece thing? Yeah. And uh, that came up there and it had no fans. And what one of the problems was that now the machines had to start getting bigger because it was more cable, more speed and required more uh, heat distribution. And one of the developers came to Steve and he said to him, dude, like, we've, you know, the fan companies obviously weren't going to rest the fact that they sure. lost their business. They made these small little fans. We can now put these fans in and it will dissipate the heat. And Steve Jobs was like, no, absolutely not. We will not do this thing. We, are, we do not have fans in our computers, blah, blah, blah. And it was a whole big thing that caused a stinted design of the next iteration of computers because they had to solve the heat problem. How do we make heat dissipate without fans? And apparently Steve Wozniak went to Steve Jobs one day and sat him down and said, dude, like, just to clarify, are we in the business of creating premier, small, sexy, gorgeous hardware, or are we in the business of creating hardware without fans? Yeah. And Steve Jobs was like, ah, right. And, of course, they moved on, they put fans back in, and they developed from there. This is legacy thinking. This, to me, is the exact example of how this legacy thinking will kick in. And Apple has been able to do that. Netflix has been able to do that. You know, this made us great, but it's not going to make us great again oh sure yeah. I mean yeah I think Netflix has been the most innovative from yeah. from posting DVDs or even VHS's at the time I think it was 97 so yeah they're still VHS's probably then. VHS's yeah from posting that to having a, a stream a streaming service that uh, has what 400 million clients around the world I mean that's yeah. and that's they cannibalized their thing. own business they were able Indeed. to say our solution uh, is no longer solving the world's problem is we're solving a deliver videotapes there, but the world's problem is how do I stream content? And as soon as you realize that, I mean, you can't try solve that with your old legacy solution. Mm. And they were able to cannibalize their own business, put themselves out of business. They True. put their old business model out of business before anybody else did. That's very brave. True. I mean, the worst is uh, someone like Kodak who actually invents, invents digital film and then just never gets on the bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think they'll come back at some point and well now they're making cryptocurrency miners Did you yes see that? exactly yeah that exactly. is that is maybe a bit a shift too far and nokia is coming back in with phones and you know one of the best selling phones in the world and yeah so another thing that you do so you said you left you you sort of stepping away from missing link another thing that you do is speaking now we had this conversation before like i think not you particularly but speaking generally it's like an an episode of oprah you feel all warm and fuzzy while it's happening, and then, but you know, the next morning you forget completely what you actually listen to. Some people make notes, some people record, and you know, they listen. I, I know someone like Jordan Peterson has a lot of fanfic because he speaks, and people really believe what he says and try to implement the principles. How do you know if you're a good speaker? Okay, so uh, it depends on your contract, right, and what you're trying to create. Uh, for some people, I was at an event the other day for a property group. And the speaker before me got up on stage, said absolutely nothing for 45 minutes, absolutely uh, made jokes, ragged the audience, did all of those things, got a standing ovation. Because he made people feel good. And for 45 minutes, if all he did was set the day off on a high and took everyone from the hangover state of walking back, you know, from a big evening function into a conference room, and he managed to take all of those people in the conference room and make them enjoy being there. Was yeah. that a failure? If that's all he achieved? Oh, no. Well, I, I, if that was his goal, that was his job to do. So, no, of course so, not. So, right. So, so in that instance, that would be that speaker. Then I had to come on. I was kind of the transition one. So I had to, I guess, continue the fun somewhat. But then I had to start introducing some serious. My job was to set the theme, to create a sense of, wow, there's a shared problem here that we have to solve. It wasn't my job to solve it altogether. My job is to get onto the stage and to take them to a point to create an itch that the rest of the conference had to scratch. Right. If I got off and nobody remembered anything that I'd said beyond the day, and I hope they would have, but if all they remembered was the fact that, and in fact, I know they did because a number of people mailed me afterwards and I've got some more work, but if all that happened was I created a certain feeling of discomfort in the audience that later on, the subsequent speakers, the subject matter experts from the property industry or things like this, who stood up and said, you know, as Richard mentioned earlier, this, this, this. Well, imagine if we could do that. 
Now I've created an itch, a, a curiosity gap in somebody's brain that somebody else could scratch. So that's another success criteria. And of course, the property expert. Now this person's sole job is to come in is to scratch the itch. Right. Now right. they could mess it up. So there's so many different jobs of a speaker that the term, uh, what makes a good speaker, it, it's more about uh, very much, you know, what makes a good soldier? Well, you know, yeah. if you're an artillery man, you've got to be good at that. Right. If con- you're, con- you know, it's context dependent. It's context dependent. Right. And so, so you need to decide when you get hired to speak. You almost ask them and say like, guys, what problem am I solving for you? And if they said to you, dude, I want you just to be interesting, things like this, then it's cool. Then you can do that. But it's far better for me. So I'll always ask where I'm going. If I'm going at the end of an event, Mm. then my job is to take the core messages that these people have come up with over the event and to give them something big to walk away with uh, that they can use. You know, the next day at your work, I want you to try this and we'll drop a big gauntlet. But my other job is, because the job of any event is to take people in someplace, pick them from train station A, and drop them at train station B, where train station B is a better place. Sure. Right. So your job of any talk is to pick them up here and take them to a better place than they were when you when you got them, and any conference. So my job as a closing speaker, then I've got to bring my best funniest stories. I've got to bring the hard hitting content. So generally, I'll start kind of maybe like a nice start, not massive. I will then go into maybe a lower content heavy middle with trying to drop lots of good hard content. And then right when these guys are thinking, sheesh, this guy's maybe, but then I'll lift with something big and fun and energetic. And while I'm keeping them up there, keeping them up at the end, I'll then drop in reminders. All right, guys, so that's how it is. I just want you to work with three things. I want you to do this, never forget this, never forget that. And that will make you blah, 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 blah. Right. Thank you. Ah. And, and that's what you're doing, right? But to clarify, you're not at all a motivational speaker. I, I know you hate I know you hate the term and hate. <laughs> and you don't like the term futurist either. Um so okay but But they have a role. They have a role to be Yeah, they're fodder. So now is is speaking I mean I don't do I'm I was terrified of public speaking at school. Now I actually don't know. I did a, a best man speech but I thought it went quite well. Um but I I don't speak professionally by any means. Is it is it an art? I mean do you have to do you have to really work on it or can you, how can I explain? Like if you have the character, it comes easier. Yeah. So the speaking, so let's face it, you run a podcast, a video series, things like this. Um, you're comfortable with, with yourself and you're comfortable you know, using your words. Yeah. So the basic part of this is fine. The art is not the speaking. I, I mean, I think the art is, okay. So there's a, there's a combination. I, I think I sometimes overdo this point and I belittle the, the role of the speaking component. But more important than the speaking is the art of the writing, right? You write a good talk before you deliver one. Right. And when we're often speaking to people, I'll say to them, you know, this is what we do. And they'll say, oh, I've done hundreds of talks. You know, I'm, I'm very comfortable on a stage. And I said, cool, how many best-selling books do you have? And then they'll say, none. I said, well, that's the problem, is that what makes you a great, uh, what makes a phenomenal presentation is the writing that comes before, not the... Yeah, standard uh, comedians say the same thing. Yeah, and the I'm not saying... writing takes years. The delivery yes. is, is the easiest part. Right, because I've seen mediocre presenters deliver, like bomb dropping talks because their content is structured well and delivered effectively and i've seen phenomenal speakers uh who's the novelty wears off after 15 minutes because they're just a cheap trick repeated yeah cough cough youtubers yeah like i saw a speaker once at 99u in new york and the guy came on stage and the first two or three minutes i thought it was absolutely amazing he was f-bombing and this that the next thing and and then what happened is the novelty of the swearing wore off quite quickly. And then it just started, then it started grating on me. And then I started thinking, well, just at least give me some content. You're thinking you're doing so well. He, I guarantee you that guy went home to his wife and was like, I killed it today. So they loved me. Yeah. And the, I always write notes when I, when, I do, uh, when I watch speakers. And my closing note, kind of my takeaway point of that speaker was all fuck but fuck all. Like, uh, there was nothing. It was just swearing. Yeah. That was the cheap trick, and that was the thing. And, yeah, it's not enough. So so you have to be good at writing. What is the point? What am I trying to get across? What do I want them to do differently when I leave the stage? And how do I engineer that process? And for me, obviously, there's a structure to that. But uh, 
like if, if I could fix one thing, it would be that. And I think if you've done your job well, then you could be a good speaker. And then over time, you practice and all of a sudden you get better at delivering certain stories and you become more comfortable in yourself. But you can deliver a phenomenal talk the first time you get on a stage. And there'll be other very confident speakers that are still delivering mediocre crap 10 years later. So it's all, so yeah, it's just, it just depends on your writing. And writing is something that people struggle with, uh, which I do as well. But uh, if you practice, it's actually, and if you read a lot. Mm, it's actually, coffee. Oh, glad yeah. to know. Mm. Okay, thanks to our, our producer. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing with writing. Because I try to write a piece a week that goes like to opinion News 24 or having to post or whatever, just just to express uh, some thoughts on some political question. But I never send them. I, I write them, 800 words, but they're never good enough. And then I spend three, four weeks just refining Wait. it. Do they tell you they're not good enough or do you tell yourself no, they're not good enough? I tell myself enough? that. Oh, jeez. Shit to get off the pot, man. They're all good enough, right? The the And again, the only way is you've got to put stuff out there. That's why I didn't publish Legacide. Sat on that book. I wrote it years before I published it. Because in my head, okay. it was in my head it was going to be a great book. As long as I didn't publish it, it could be a great book. I could have written the world's best-selling book of all time yeah. in my head. But the second I release it, it's just going to be another book that sits on you know the bottom shelf of exclusive books that nobody's ever heard of. And I had to get over the fact. And my my realization was, I read somewhere for most people it's their third book where they start making. Uh, I, you know, I also I've got a YouTube channel. Nobody yeah. watches them. Like nobody. I mean, I, I retweet, Rich. I'm Thanks, sorry. dude. I, I appreciate I try it. A lot. I, I watch. I watch them religiously. Thank you. If, and uh, and occasionally, though, I mean, I'll get speaking gigs out of them, and the small group of people watch them, and it seems to still work. But people told me it's going to take you a hundred of these things before people start uh, even vaguely noticing you, and it's going to take three books before people take you seriously. And so I realized, oh, I don't have to write a good first book. I just have to write the first book so that I can get it out of the way to write the second one. And I feel that's exactly the same with writing. And I think maybe why I am able to speak well is because of all the writing I did. When we started blogging in 2001, we had Joe Blog and we had Hello World. I mean, Hello World was on every major blog role on the planet. Right. Like if Seth Godin's blog role had us, Robert Scoble, we were the top because of the way it was written. We were at the top of everybody's blog role. Like we were a, when Seth Godin launched his, uh, which book was it? Uh, All Marked as a Liars. Uh, he did a world, instead of doing a book tour, he did the world's first blog book tour and he picked five blogs around the world to interview him and we were the one, we were one of them. Like really? we were prolific. Okay. We wrote every day. And, uh, and I think that, that just putting stuff out there and being judged in real time, practicing in public, uh, was what happened and I think that you miss something by not putting it out there because then you what you are missing is critique and feedback so you're missing True. the fact that oh nobody read that one or wow that one I thought was so shit everybody read it yeah and that happens quite a few times on podcasts uh, on the other one like we do a podcast and I think you know that wasn't that interesting and then you get like 10 emails from from Alaska <laughs> like oh this was one of the greatest things ever my girlfriend is uh South African, or she used to live in South Africa, and it brought back memories for her. I'm like, wow, okay, we just spoke about Johannesburg, you know, as a city, and um, I mean, yeah, it's true. Maybe I should just just send those fucking pieces over. And if you don't send them there, then put them up. Open a Ghostio account or a Medium account, and write them there, or put them on LinkedIn. Don Packett, my business partner, he had so much traction writing on LinkedIn. You couldn't believe it. It was like a, a Link- throwaway idea. LinkedIn still exists. LinkedIn, I get more, probably more views. So LinkedIn, certainly for my videos, does better for me than Twitter does. Okay. Uh, uh, without a doubt. And uh, yeah, people are now going to LinkedIn for content. So the one thing why I spend more time on LinkedIn than I do on Facebook is Facebook is, is really now seen for me. And it's, I'm not, it's not a diss. It's just what it's become. And maybe it's because of the people I follow. It's mostly family and friends. It's... Um, Photos of family, what they're up to. Sure. Funny about my cousin's new boyfriend. And, uh, uh, you know, funny videos and maybe inspirational videos. Whereas LinkedIn generally is business content. I've True. built a contextual network around uh, a context of relevance to me. So bizarrely, I've found it has actually started to find really? this little value. I base. actually canceled LinkedIn because I got requests from random people. But on Facebook, you must join the Renegade Report Group. Really? It's a good conversation. Yesterday we had a, an argument about whether apartheid was a crime against humanity. Were there? Whether apartheid was a crime against humanity. Okay, sir. So. And um, and he had people that were like, no, you know, the Bantus would, you know, voluntarily move to the homelands. I'm like, 
noted that they were forced there. Uh, but look, it was a great conversation I between mean, Afrikaners and, and like black anarchist libertarians and uh, it was great you should come join us if you oh, want to I that's will a, do that I'd love a, to check it out that's a yeah no I think it's a so that that's the one reason why I stay on Facebook is because so I'm the people that I follow are actually interesting yeah. I don't follow family and friends yeah, so Facebook for me is primarily to keep up with family and friends and groups on Facebook are for context most of my groups on Facebook are board games <laughs> oh yeah that's what you do because you you have uh, like so you're friends with Three board games with uh, my other friend uh, Mark Oppenheimer yeah. and Jason Werbeloff. I mean, two of the both, smartest people I've ever met. Both of whom are coming <laughs> onto this podcast. So they, they are two good friends of mine. And there's something about, they're both philosophers. Uh, I don't think, I mean, you wouldn't call yourself a philosopher by any means, but you do think about things I, fairly so often. So I'm a, certainly a fan of philosophy. I read some item of philosophy every single day. Oh, perfect. I reflect on then, it every single day. you're a philosopher. Day. I mean, I don't think you need a degree to yeah. be a philosopher. What is it about board games and like very intelligent people? I don't play board games, I must be honest, but very intelligent friends of mine play board games with you specifically. What is it about them? Well, for me, so it's, it's uh, I, I, solving problems is fun, right? So I like thinking. I, I enjoy using my brain and I get very bored when the problem is solved. So that's why I don't enjoy running a business. You solve the biz- you solve the problem at the beginning, yeah. and then early in a stage of a business, you're solving lots and lots and lots of problems, trying to figure shit out. And it's a bit like a game. And the problem with running my business, like I, I mean, I really, really hate if people. If I could not work tomorrow, people say, "Oh, you'd be so bored." No, if you're bored yeah. because you don't go to work. You've built your life wrong. You have a shit life, sure. right? Anybody who turns around and says, oh, if I wasn't working, I'd be bored. You're a fucking idiot. Sort yourself out. Get your life together. Do something better. If your sole point of self-worth and interest is about your work, uh, is yeah. your work then, oh, shame, man. Yeah. So, sorry, for, sorry your life is so bad. But there was a study, actually. In America and Japan, they work the longest hours of anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Yet, they consume the most television in the world. Wow. And, and the point being... You work because you work so many hours. You just want to go home and not do anything. So you just rot your brain watching television in Europe, where they got like mandated working hours, uh, th- attendance to theatre, restaurants, um, interesting museums, for example, are much higher than in areas where there's no mandated. Um, that makes sense. Limited work hours, no, me, so to speak. Playing a board game is an intellectual pursuit that is fun, and so. Invariably, I'm around people that are at least contextually smart. So, yeah. so people who like board games are smart enough, and so the conversation might be smart and things like this. The actual puzzle of the game itself always intrigues me. So it's why I don't play, like, the certain games, like my favorite game, Tech, I played over 300 times. But most games I play, like, you know, three or four times. Because once you feel you get the joke, even though that if you play it more and more and more, you'll, uh, you know, figure out more about the game, but actually, I want to now learn about another designer's thinking and play something new and, and things like that. And invariably, I think it's a pursuit for people who want to, to feel like their brain is being used to solve things. Mm-hmm. And I often find that in my business, that's what I hated. I used to sit in meetings with people. And for them, it's the first time we're having this discussion around presentation theory. But for me, I've literally switched it's, on autopilot. It's the 500th one in, in a year uh, and a half. Yeah. And even if that meeting was amazing, I leave feeling a little bit dirty. I, feel, I leave feeling like I've not done anything new and sure. I've said the same things. And then I'll go and I'll meet. I mean, I've got like three games in my bag. I've taken my smallest backpack because I didn't want to carry much today. And I've got three board games with me. And I'll go and have lunch with somebody and I'll play. Like the one game I've got is basically um, Knots and Crosses. With one component where if you guess where I'm going to put my piece first, um, I don't get to put it. So if you can guess uh, where I'm placing my cross. Simple concept, yeah. Yeah, simple concept. And there's cards to manage that. Changes the game completely. Super fun. I could teach it to you in five minutes. So if I was sitting down for you know a coffee or something with somebody, maybe you pull it out instead of just talking shit. Or sometimes I use them to start a way of thinking. So, okay, well, let's play this game. Okay, now using the constraints of this game alone, how do we have a conversation? And so, so for me, I really, really enjoy that. But I just enjoy any pursuit that's not mindless. So I do, I think the TV quality that we have at the moment, the, like the level of series and television series we've got are magnificent. Sure. But I don't want to just do that. Uh, yeah. And also, I'm, I, like, I like being obsessed about something. I always say to people, in fact, I said this on Gersha yesterday, that um, 
And people think you have to think outside the box. I think that's so bad. Don't think outside the box. Just have lots of boxes. People need to be obsessed with things. So I'm obsessed. Like at the moment, I'm obsessed with jump rope. It sounds so bizarre. Like I love jump ropes. I'm, if, if I, you can see, if you search my search history, it's jump rope reviews and things like this and different routines. I have and, the same problem. Uh, except it's, it's, uh, dare I mention this publicly? I do CrossFit and uh, for the past six months, and the, just the absurd difficulty in just trying to do one movement correctly from the bar on the floor to over your head. That movement is insanely insanely difficult there are uh, yeah. micro cues and and things you need to worry about all the bloody time so we know you know you watch the olympics so most crossfitters go train at the yard to learn the movement patterns right and then they they perfect the because that's what crossfit's amazing because it keeps you it's a new game every day genius it is it is and that's yeah that's another thing that's true it's a new game every day but Sorry, also the olympics but if you so at the olympics you see these people lift like you know 150 kilos overhead and it doesn't look like much, but to, to get that movement pattern right, it's the most difficult thing. And I've done kickboxing, MMA, horse riding, shooting. I mean, I've done everything under the sun. And this is just, just to move a bar from the floor to over the head is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Yeah. So a lot of the amazing. CrossFit athletes, you know, the yard, I'm actually having lunch with Scott McIntosh today. I think he's probably South Africa's top um, strength and conditioning coach. Yeah, it's Leon William Nickel, I believe. Yeah, it's just behind off. Missing Link's office. Oh, he was yeah. going to come there. Okay. Yeah, and uh, uh, <laughs> his thing is about training the movement patterns. Yeah. So a lot of the CrossFit gym owners, will, uh, box owners, whatever you call them, will come and train with Scotty. And I've re- what I love is there's no conflict. It's not saying because they serve different purposes. So there, if you want to do a a snatch, I mean, you're not going to do a snatch at the yard for a month, you know, right. you, and then you're going to be doing it with a broomstick for weeks before you're doing it with, and it's a progression. And I love that anybody who can be that obsessed with one thing that says, okay, this movement, every single day, one of the things in jump rope and CrossFit, double unders. Yeah. I can smash maybe five in a row at best, and then I trip up. Whereas I can jump like, you know, hundreds. That's far, far more than me. I mean, I can do 500 single skips in yeah. a row, no problem. I cannot. Double unders, no. Can't get them. So every single day I practice my double unders. Every single day, and I try to do it, and I look at different techniques in different ways. And that's a pursuit for me. Um, it's on my list of um, I've got a hundred things I want to do list and uh, to do a hundred consecutive double unders. Now that's up there with build a hundred million uh, rand business or a hundred million dollar business. Uh, and I realized at the end of my life, the checkbox. I'm not going to measure myself on which boxes were checked. Right. I'm going to measure myself on how many of the boxes of things I wanted to do in my life. Now, get to a hundred double unders. I hope by the end of the year I'll be there. Build a hundred million dollar business. I, I won't be. If I get to the end of my life and I've not managed to do the $100 million business, but I've done 99 other things, my life is not going to be a failure. Sure. But if, you've only pursue, if you only pursue that one thing, if your measurement of success is this and business alone, mm. I think you're, you're setting yourself up for, first of all, like quite a bit of, it's quite a boring existence. Sure. Well, do you know Scott Adams, the inventor of Dilbert? Of course. And his, his yeah. talent stack theory. Oh, no, I don't know that. So his talent stack is very good. So he says, you know, people, if you are an expert in a single field, so basically knowledge is a circle. You, 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 your contribution to it is a micron arrow. Your, your PhD is just barely touching out the bubble of knowledge. What he wants to do is have a talent stack. So, so in terms of knowledge, you are just competent enough in as many things as possible to be great overall. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and I think it's good to have one core. So in pre- I would talk about in presentation theory, yeah. right? I'd back myself at the Olympics just on that. Sure. Right. On that one thing. And I mean, it came from, and I mean, you may have seen cause I did a video on it, but it did come, honestly, this thing came out of the one day I was driving and I'd bought myself a Porsche and I was driving and it was a childhood dream. And it didn't, uh, you know, there's where expectation and reality don't really sync. Yeah. Like I really wanted to have one. And um, and then there was a guy next to me in a Ferrari. And I realized, fuck man, in the Olympics of being rich, I'm never going to achieve anything. Like I wouldn't make the um, Panorama High School, uh, you know, team of, of rich people. Like, like there's always richer people. Sure. And I thought, what could I make the Olympics on? And I thought presentation theory. And again, even in that though, slither. 
even in my contribution to get me maybe Olympic gold at one thing or Olympic bronze at one Olympics, yeah. I'm still not changing it. But what is making me better at all of those things is my uh, my micro obsessions across the board. My obsession with, and that's my problem with business. Business was a micro obsession. It was like a, an amazing hobby that I got bored of. Like I get bored of all other hobbies because I sure. want to pursue something new. Unfortunately, it puts my kids through school. Yeah. So I have to keep, it's like a, imagine you have a hobby you absolutely loved when you're 20 and now you have to do it because it's your job. That's why, by the way, do what you love. You'll never work a day in your life. Bullshit. It's the worst idea I've ever heard of in my life. Yeah. You know, if I did what I loved, I'd own a curry restaurant and I'd hate curry. You know, like uh, it's, it's not the right thing. So I'm stuck in this stupid hobby uh, that I started in my, when I was 22, starting a business. And it was like, and it was that. And I, I had a punk rock record label because I love punk rock. And there's always been these different obsessions. Martial arts was a massive one for me. Kung fu all oh, through really? my 20s. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I taught tiger form, Hungar. I instructed in Bagua. Uh, I trained obsessively. So I, I was no training what you're saying, but I assume it's correct. nine times a week uh, in different martial arts. Like I was really, really obsessed with that. But um, again, not my job, not my passion. But it's the discipline helped mm. me so. When I started Missing Link, the the being forced into traditional martial art discipline, you know, we, it's, it's very different to MMA. You have to stand and horse the whole time sure. and everything. You know, you're very, very parat. That was such a counterpoint to being an entrepreneur that was so valuable. So I want to have lots of things. Right now, my obsessions are my board games, jump rope. I still love reading. Reading has been the one thing, and fiction mostly, that I've always obsessed with. And it's never worn off. fiction. I, well, Jason, who is our mutual friend, writes yeah. fiction. He's in reading his of, book. At the I, cool. I, I've read, uh, he sent me a copy of one of his books, which was great. I just can't. I don't say can't, but fiction just does nothing for me. Fiction is where I learn far more. I learn much and, more from fiction. And that's than what he says. So I'm trying. I'm trying. So I, the I'm book bought... I'm reading right now is about the Cold War. Okay. And it's fiction. And so one of the, I, I've got content. This is a series of books by a guy called Ken Follett. And the first book well in the series was called Fall of Giants. And in Fall of Giants, I learned about the Schleffen plan. Mm -hmm. And the Schleffen plan is what I use to teach people why not to overreact to social media. But it was a plan around how the Germans, uh, Baron von Stephen, created a plan 20 years before the First World War that would guarantee German victory in a multi-pronged attack. Mm. Germany should have stuck to this plan. World War I would have been over in the first year. They were one day outside Paris and perfectly executing the plan. And the rich influences, the, the nobles' wives of the noble generals who were fighting for Germany, they were getting attacked on the Western Front. And they panicked and they started screaming about their farms getting burnt. And they went to the Tsar and they said, hey, dude, please, our houses are getting burnt. Now, in the biggest picture of things, a couple of rich people's houses getting burnt, nothing. Sure. But um, Stefan had retired. They had the Stefan plan. And one day outside Paris, which was an important stronghold in beating the Stefan plan, the Tsar said, you know what? I want to keep people happy. I'm really worried about what the influencers are saying. This vocal minority is saying about our brand. So he divided the forces, sent them back there to fight on two fronts, which was exactly what Stephen said was a no-win situation. Yeah. And, they, and the war went on you know, for well, years and years and years, and they lost. And the reparations uh, caused the Second World War and all of these things. It was a horrifically bad thing. And um, I learned all about that. If I had to read a history book, I would get bored. Sure. But when I read that bit of history packaged into a story with characters that I'd learned to love and enjoy and things like this, it was amazing. Every great bit of historical fact, when I, I talk about fourth shot thinking in one of my main talks on leadership, and I talk about how uh, the Battle of Waterloo was won, and uh, the entire thing came from the one little small principle based on Sharp's Rifles by Bernard Cornwall, a historical oh, yeah. novel. I've read one of his books, Harlequin, I think it was. Harlequin, absolutely. Yeah, about the archers. I mean, Ten years ago, yeah. Right. So that bad. guy writes. So what I find nowadays is good fiction is written by people that are so well-researched. The new book by Stephen Leather that I read like two weeks ago was on firefighting. It taught me so much about how firefighters work that actually the story, you realize when you finish the book, this, the entire story was a gratuitous wrapping on learning cool shit about firefighters. So it was a training manual. It was a training manual with a narrative. And I was, I loved it. And his original books were all that, how that's, snipers work, how a, these things. So that's oh. a good way of 
to actually entice me to read fiction, I must be honest. So let me, I'm going to pick maybe just three fictions for you this year. Okay. For you to read that I feel that will give you something. And then my only challenge to you is at the end of it is you're going to come and do a talk to my team. Uh, which pushes you as a speaker. Okay. And it's literally all I want is at some point in the talk, any topic you want to have drawn, and maybe we'll discuss the topic first so I can recommend the books. Uh, yeah. So that at least one example from one of those three books, you're able to drop in as if it was, you know, a history. Because history is a far better predictor or a far better tool for delivering content. People love it. It's a great sure. story narrative wrapping. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so have you well, done that's why, well, that, Okay. That's the deal. Cool. Right. Deal, yeah, sorry. But it's like awesome. my tweet this morning on Turner, William Turner, that you okay. favorited. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, someone put a picture, a, a painting that he did, and uh, I said, well, William Turner didn't draw, paint, he just drew light. Hmm. Yeah. And how light is bounced off different objects. And William Turner studied physics to figure out how to do light properly. My nephew's a developer and he studied physics. He, and he said, I never wanted to be a physicist. I just wanted to be clever. Like, I just wanted to understand smart problem solving. Right. He, his first job was a marketer for Capital One. And when, when people said to him, why didn't you become a physicist? Because he got a, a first from Oxford. He was like, never wanted to be a physicist. It's just a really great operating system. Sure. And I think that's... It's a bit like law, well. they say. Possibly, law, yeah. law teaches you how to argue. Not really. You just learn. You just do memory, you know, have memory recall. And, uh, I'm very excited I learned, to see Mark's episode. I think it'll be... Yeah, that guy's an intellectual yeah, he, heavyweight. He's great. I mean, I learned far more outside of university just having discussion like this than in, in the lecture hall. That's for sure. So last thing from our side, Rich. Um, your YouTube series. I think... Well, I personally love them. <laughs> Three, four, five-minute videos about a, a topic of sorts. Are you trying to make better entrepreneurs definitely trying to make better entrepreneurs so I'm, I'm in fact no i'm trying to make better people it's so weird because i talk about business not being the dual end all but unfortunately one of the things that I, sure. I, I understand i'm actually trying to make people better at business in general i like i really do hope that uh, somebody with a job and a company watched one of these videos about best versus favorite for example or one of these premises and makes them better at their work um i think i'm trying to aggressively share i think that i've picked up a bunch of things and also i think i'm trying to put stuff out there like i want to i want my to be brave enough with my ideas and thinkings that they're out there for people to challenge okay uh, the truth of the matter is i mean in fact these are all great bullshitty answers i hate that i'm obscure like i, I oh really I, oh, you yeah. must become a twitter troll like me and then you become uh, not obscure but just hated by some people yeah. which is fine i i, I feel like and I, this is jesus this is the worst thing to say out loud and people are going to judge me in this. I really like, like, I will, if I measure my success later on in life. So I talk about this idea of um, mentions per minute. What's your mentions per minute score? Okay. And what I mean by that is, if you take, let's take um, uh, Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump's Shoot. scale is mentions per second. Oh, sure. Right? Uh, Tim Ferriss probably mentions per minute. Would you think that's fair enough? Right, maybe I, I even think, yeah. maybe even better, but mentions per minute. Somewhere in any minute, somewhere in the planet, somebody's saying the name Tim Ferriss said, and it's not like your mom, sure. right? And I think that I'm possibly mentions per day, right? Oh, I would I like to think that I make a mentions per day scale, which I still think is quite good. I think some people are mentions per month, you know, outside of or, people who know never. them or never. Yeah, like I would like to think that I've made enough of an impact, that, and even if they don't remember my name, remember that guy, that speaker who came in and said to us, "This, I reckon somebody, some point in a day, will say, uh, Richard Mulholland said this or this or the next thing," and I, like I'm not nearly happy with that, and I want to get to a mentions per minute. Really. Yeah. I mean, but do you want people to come to you in the restaurant and say, "Oh, Rich. people come out to me in restaurants." That's amazing. Oh, do they? It happened to me. As, Okay, I can count on my hands, but it's always been an experience. You know what's amazing about it? So first of all, the novelty of that never wears off. So I was sitting with them. Um, I did a speaking, well, I've done 10 speaking tours with John T. Rhodes. Oh. And um, a great guy. And every I've never seen that man. That man does not know what warm food tastes like. Because you sit down in a restaurant and we both get served a meal. And people do not for a single second Just respect that um, this point of the meal where you're eating should be and we were sitting having a meal and people would walk up and say hi Janti, sorry i'm such a big fan and everyone's got a story right nobody wants to come up and and say Indeed. that everyone wants to walk up and tell you their Janti road story yeah, I saw how you, you impacted wherever. my life or how you did this thing 
And every single time John T. smiles, puts down his knife and fork, and he sits there and he listens to the story, and he says, that's amazing. And he genuinely treats you like it's the most magnificent thing that's ever happened to him. And then um, when he finishes, he'll sign whatever needs to be signed, and he'll pick up his knife and fork, and okay, I'm going. And I remember sitting to him one day, and I said to him, dude, like, now for me, that novelty is, because it doesn't happen a lot. If somebody, I mean, I want to stand up and say, did you, this person, it's always Longevity Magazine. By the way, that's what I was going to say. It's always people who've read Longevity Magazine. It's always older women will walk up to me and say, I read your column in Longevity Magazine. It's never anything else. Oh, really? It's bizarre. That's the thing. That's, I'm going to die and it's going to be Longevity columnist. That's going to be my, my impact. But anyway, uh, I said to him, dude, don't you hate this? Like, don't you ever want to send them away? He said, I did once. He said, I was sitting with my ex-wife, Kate, and the kids, and I was eating my food, and the kids were asking me something. So I was actually answering my children, and this person walked up and said, excuse me, John T. Hi, do you mind if I just – and I turned around and I said to them, actually, um, could you mind coming back in a bit? Uh, because I'm, my kids were just actually telling me about their day. And he said, I thought I handled it in a really polite way, but that person seemed quite offended and things like this or whatever. And he said, like, I turned around to, to look at my family as if I'd done a solid. And my wife looked to me and said to me, Jonty, we're eating this meal because those people uh, come up to us. Yeah. I said, never forget that because of who you are is why we're able to come out to a nice restaurants and do these nice things. I think you owe that person an apology. And John put down his knife and fork and he got up and he walked over to the table. He said, I'm so sorry. I was just wanted to finish a point. Did the story. Everything was fine. Nobody was bent out of shape. And he sat down and he said, I'll never say no to anybody again. And literally, I promise you, I have never seen that man eat a warm meal. That man, he sits down at a table and people walk up to him. And now he lives uh, more primarily. He's got a health and wellness business. He actually mentioned me last week. He's got a health and wellness business. He's just launching in India. In India, uh, when he goes shopping, there's a queue of like 50 people around him uh, wanting. He's like, a, in South Africa, he's well known. Yeah. He's like a loved son. Sure. Um, in India, he's a god. And uh, he'll never eat a warm meal. And it, m- it makes me mindful that I would, I would love that. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to never eat a warm meal again. <laughs> And it's so vain. It's so horrible. But I feel like I've got these ideas that I'm bursting to share and I've got all these things. And I just wish I just wish people wanted to know them. Uh, a good friend told me, you know, um, you should only be humble about things that you should be humble about. And uh, I mean, Rich, I, okay, I don't know you very, very well, but we've a few times. Uh, there's not much you need to be humble about. So I hope that happens soon enough for you. Thank you very much. Never I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a bash anyway. Perfect. Rich, cool. thank you so much. Dude, Coming on this small little so podcast, much. I really awesome. appreciate it. I love it. And uh, yeah, they can find you on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Rich Mulholland. Yeah, in fact, if you go to twitter.com, you know, Rich Mulholland or whatever it is, there's actually my first pinned tweet is a link to everything else. 100%. Right. We'll find you there. Cool. All Good right. Times. Thank you, listeners. See you next time. All right. Peace.